presented content does not provide or constitute medical, financial, or legal advice. The content is for information purposes only. Viewing or listening to the content does not constitute a physician-patient, dentist-patient, fiduciary-client, or attorney-client relationship. Welcome to Knowledgeable Aging. I'm your host, Jason Kotar. Joining us today to talk about effectively influencing state legislators and why that's important is Dr. Dan Morheim. Dr. Dan Morheim brings a unique perspective, physician, state legislator, academic, author, and consultant. As an emergency medicine physician, he's been on the front lines of healthcare for over 40 years. He is the author of two books, the most recent one in 2020 called Preparing for a Better End. How are you doing today, Dr. Morheim? Uh, great, and great to be with you. Thank you, Jason. Very much. Thank you, sir. I'm looking forward to time together. Um, I'm going to go ahead and just jump right in, Dr. Morheim. Um, the topic today is going to be effectively influencing state legislators and why that's important. I will get right into it. I served in the Maryland General Assembly for 24 years, and I want to empower people. So, okay. Well, good afternoon, good morning, wherever you are. Thank you for joining Knowledgeable Aging and Jason and me today. So this is the disclaimer. These slides are all mine. And I'm going to talk about uh, how to be an effective public, public policy advocate, whatever your issue is. Now, for the most part of this sl slideshow, I will not be reading the slides. I'll be talking over them, so I'll count on you to read them. The first part will be a lot of numbers. Uh, don't worry if you don't get them all. I'll try and make the general points. And in the end, I'll tell you some stories. And uh, the stories, I hope, will illustrate how you can really be effective, whatever your legislative issue is. So um, this is my background. And boy, I learned a lot in the, uh, both as an ER doctor, which informed a lot of my politics, taking care of people primarily in a large urban trauma center emergency room. But I've worked in suburban hospitals, rural hospitals, Navajo Indian Reservation, overseas after Saudi Arabia and, and Gulf War, in Saudi Arabia and Kuwait after Gulf War I. But I did write this book, Preparing for a Better End, from Johns Hopkins Press. It got great endorsements, and I hope you will get a copy. It is about advanced care planning and end-of-life care. Uh, really a tough topic. I mean, I was running for office, and people were saying, what are you working on, Delegate Morheim? And I would go through the issues, and then I'd say, your death, the death of everybody you know, and don't forget to vote for me in the next election. Um, people really did appreciate that I was willing to bring that topic up. And this is what the book uh, looks like. It's available through all the usual sources. And there's the website that has uh, endorsements and info and background. So I want to empower you, whatever your issue is, uh, to deal with state legislatures. And to, do, to understand some of that, we're going to go through some elections. And then like any other cultural arrangement, there's do's and don'ts and how to communicate. Tricks of the trade. So for the moment, let's forget the federal government. Boy, that's just down the road here from where I am in Maryland, in Washington, where Jason lives. And, uh, you know, we all have our positions on that. But state legislatures control and regulate everything else, including many things that uh, involve seniors, either as seniors or in whatever your profession or avocations are. And here's just a partial uh, list. And that's everything else that the federal government does not, which is an awful lot. So you see differences in states. Some states have very strict gun control laws, others uh, very uh, loose gun control laws. Some states uh, participate in the Affordable Care Act, other states uh, did not. Uh, some states uh, allow different regulations of medical professions, others uh, don't. Some have um, are tight, trying to tighten up voting and election rules, others feel they're very comfortable the way they are, want to make it uh, easier for people to vote. Taxes and on and on and on are all state level issues. So here's your challenge. I bet you can name your governor. You probably can name your state attorney general, but can you name your state senator? 
Do you know your representative assembly person and delegate? And by the way, state legislatures also draw the legislative and congressional districts. In other words, the gerrymandering that we see around the country, those are all done uh, by state legislatures in conjunction with governors. And it will be coming up this year because this last year, 2020, was a census year. Each legislature is so different. So most are um, part-time. Texas meets every two years. And the reason it's part-time is because when the country was founded, only the uh, white landowning males could participate and they were farmers. So in the winter, the fields were fallow, in the spring they were planting, in the summer they were hoeing, in the fall they were harvesting. And so most legislative sessions are January, February, March, April, um, and the size is, is really different too. So California Senate District is one million people. That's as big as some states. New Hampshire, New Hampshire, yes, its lower house has 400 members. That's about 3,000 people per member. Apparently, if you live long enough in New Hampshire and you haven't committed any major crimes or done anything awful, you will eventually serve in their house. That's quite a difference uh, in scope. And consequently, also the election uh, rules differ. And I want to go into elections a little bit, because if you don't understand the elections, you won't be as effective an advocate. And I'll use Maryland as my example. Um, and, and, and a legislative district is about 140,000. That was my size legislative district. So it starts with a population of 6 million, but you can extrapolate this to your own state. A district is 140,000 people here in some states, like in New Hampshire, there are 3,000. California and assembly districts about 400,000 people, almost the size of a congressional district. Your state will have its own variations. The way district lines are drawn throughout the country, um, have to have to emphasize the importance of the primary election. In most states throughout the country, district lines are drawn so that uh, if you're a Democrat and you're in a predominantly Democratic district, the general election is a foregone conclusion. Likewise, if you're a Republican, in a Republican district, it's a foregone conclusion that you're going to win. And so the general elections in our state only matter in about 10 of the 47 districts. And that's pretty typical uh, around the country. Now, you may not know these counties um, that you could fill in your own counties. There's parts of Los Angeles that are going to be very, very liberal all the time. But parts of other parts of California are going to be very conservative. Likewise, New York, um, New York City and the area there is pretty uh, liberal, but Staten Island's more conservative, upstate New York's more conservative. So if you're winning a, a primary election as a Republican or Republican district, you can go on a round the world cruise and be joined by your Democratic colleague. So primary elections are really important, but what is the turnout in a primary election? How many of you voted in the primary election, especially if there's not a lot of folks, uh, not, not a lot of exciting races going on? And so, um, Turnout might be 25 to 40 percent. It might be 10 or 15 percent. And especially when you get down ballot. I mean, people know who they want to vote for president or maybe senator or Congress. But when you get down into those lower races, uh, dog catcher, city comptroller, um, city council, names get less familiar. And so what do most of us do? We either don't vote uh, for those candidates or we pick their name out of some superficial characteristic, like it's a woman's name, I want to elect a woman, that sounds like a, a black name or an Irish name or a Jewish name, I want to vote for that person for whatever reason. They may or not be in fact consonant with any of your political beliefs, but we tend to do that. So there's a target group that we call prime voters. And those are the folks who vote in every primary election. And let me assure you, every state legislator knows who those prime voters are, because I can find out whether Jason voted in the last primary elections 
last two or three, if he did, he'll likely vote again. I don't know how he voted because it's a secret ballot, but um, there's only about five or 10,000 people. And then what does it take to win a primary election? In Maryland, it's 5,000 uh, votes maybe. So it starts with 140,000, boils down to 5,000. If you look at other state elections, uh, most states, um, primary elections are won with very few votes. And so those are the people that get door knocks, direct mail, phone calls. When I campaigned the first time, I went door to door about for about eight months, four to five nights a week, four to five hours a night, basically always by myself. But I'm not knocking on every door. I'm only knocking on the doors of prime voters. So it might be as I get to a street, 101 Maple Drive, 109 Maple Drive, 115 Maple Drive, 137 Maple Drive, then I cross the other side of the street and come back down. When you are communicating with legislators, they will be looking up in their office whether you're a prime voter or not. Now, they respond to everybody. When I was in office, I responded to everybody. But um, if I had a prime voter calling me uh, and I had the time, boy, they'd be the person I'd call back. They're the person I'd make sure we respond to. Because when you're only trying to win a race with three or four or 5,000 votes, if three or four people contact you, that's a, legitimately, that's a grassroots firestorm of public opinion. I would drop what I'm doing and pay attention to that. That's what's going on in the district. So uh, that's why I commit to voting. And this is gonna be a little bit of a uh, how to communicate, whether it's verbally or in writing with a legislator. Now, when I first got in office, 1994, it was pre-internet. And, uh, uh, and so we would get letters from constituents that were typewritten or handwritten. And I had a rule in my office for all my 24 hours in office, anybody that would handwrite me, I would write back and write back. I thought it was a very personal kind of feeling to get a real letter from a person or typewritten. Well, then fax machines arrived and my staff of one would go, oh my God, a fax has arrived and brush it over to me. And that was pretty exciting for a few weeks until we realized that was, but then emails came. Well, that's good. We can communicate directly electronically. Well, we all know what happened with emails. So what actually matters now is almost full circle Back to that personal communication. We understand in office what email blasts are and their abuse, and we understand that people can form letter things. But if I get, again, two or three real letters from real people and in the state legislature, you know your district and you know your communities, um, that's real. So your letter could start off, dear elected official, I, I'm a voter in your district. If you're of their party, be sure to mention that. Yeah, that happens to be. And I usually talk to all my family and friends, 10, 20 people uh, regularly about various issues. Already you're sending a signal that this person is connected and I'm gonna listen to that because 10 or 20 people of the three or four or five or 8,000 I need to win the primary election is a significant number. Participate as best you can, whatever's comfortable. And here's some options. I'll just tell you the story of a, coffee my very first time running i was kind of an outside candidate i did win but these people were hosting the coffee for me and they sent out hundreds of postcards and i got to this event i was so excited but when i got there it was them a uh, couple other people and my wife and me like six people and i thought oh my gosh there's no way i can win this but what happened was i kept running into people over the next few weeks who said oh i couldn't get to the coffee but if don and tammy are for you i'm for you and a lot of times just that kind of communication makes a big difference. So voting, participate in the election process, um, and at the state level, a contribution of 25 or 50 or $75, we remember who that is. It's not like you gotta write thousands, that's nice, but some contribution does help money, campaigns cost money. But the other big one is 
ideas, suggestions, be a resource. I mean, legislators will pretend they know everything about everything, and we have stock answers for most of the things, but actually there's a lot of stuff to learn, and it's one of the best parts of the job, and I'll tell you some stories about that. But when people are elected, they're elected for two years or four years in Maryland, state legislators, all of them, are, we're all elected for four years. So it's a try and build relationship over that four-year time. If you kind of communicate with others and they don't do what you want the first time and you burn the bridge, that that's not going to work at all. You want to maintain and build a relationship and be a reputable resource because then we will call you. An issue comes up on real estate. I'll be called, might call Jason because that's what he does otherwise. I mean, I, bought, I own a house, but I'm not a real estate expert or an education. If I have a teacher who's been communicating with me, I want to know what's going on in the classroom. So these are the, the kinds of things that you want to do that I've covered. But know your legislators. All our bios are there and a personal connection is good. So maybe you went to Ohio State, your legislator went to Ohio State. Maybe you sing in the church choir. It might be obvious that your legislator uh, church choir uh, sings in a church choir. You coach soccer, they coach soccer. Whatever it is that you could connect with in addition to your mission, message. And also, if your legislator happens to do something that you like, even if it's not the issue you're contacting them about, you can say, thank you very much for taking the lead on, on this issue about something. I want to write to you about something else, but I really appreciate that you did that. And we're like everybody else. We like praise. Now, we understand you run for office. You get a big target on you. People can say and do anything and attack you, and that's part of the price you pay for public life. Uh, that's okay. But if you really want to connect with people, uh, that's a good way to do it. Know the timing. Most legislative sessions, again, start in the winter. So you want to start communicating with folks in the fall, building some education. And you may not get everything that you like, so take what you can get and move on. I'm going to, so that's really the importance of the election process. Commit to electing, commit to communicating on a regular basis. And let me tell you some stories here that will illustrate this. I just want to look at my uh, time here. So um, let me do blood donation change. I was working in ER shift and the hospital chaplain came up to me. This was shortly after 9-11 and he's tugging on my shirt. He says, uh, uh, my kid wants to talk to you about a bill about blood donation. Oh God, I'm in the middle of a shift. What am I going to do? But sure, I'll, I'll, I'll talk to him. So he calls me up a couple of days later and the blood donation age in Maryland uh, was 18. And he said, I'm 17. And, uh, and he was like my size physiologically. He's a big kid. And uh, he said, when I, um, got my driver's license, I made an organ donation decision. And, uh, you know, uh, and I, and I, but I can't, I went to donate blood, but they wouldn't take it because I was under 18. I said, wow. And, you know, I was thinking from his point of view, he's talking to an ER doctor who's a state legislator. But I hadn't thought of the age of blood donation in our state. So I called up the Maryland Red Cross and I said, what's the age here? And they said, it's 18. But he, this kid and I did some work. And we found other states with 17 and 16. So I asked Maryland Red Cross, why is it 18? And they said, well, we don't know. It's always been 18. Long story short, we put in a bill to lower the age of blood donation to 17, and it was enacted. And it enabled more people to donate blood, and also people whose blood, so to speak, wasn't uh, as polluted with different kinds of problems that uh, people get into later in life. But, you know, you'd think maybe well, I should know that as an ER doctor. I hadn't thought asked that question. So you never know what people know and don't know. I'll tell you a story about the first uh, bill I passed. That was uh, House Bill 78 in 1996. At that time, 
in Maryland. We only had three wineries. We didn't have organic food. We didn't have farmers markets. So I had the bright idea to put in a bill through a mechanism to expand those. Our neighboring states, Virginia had a lot of wineries. Pennsylvania had a lot of, wi lot of wineries. And to get the bill through, I had to um, get it by this really tough guy who is an uh, uh, agriculture expert, among other things. And we developed a very interesting relationship over the years. Um, and I gave him, gave him all this data about the potential growth of the wine industry, the potential growth of the organic food industry, uh, the advantages of direct farm sales and farmers markets. And he just laughed. And he was from California. He said, you're just a California kid with these crazy ideas. Well, the day of the bill hearing came and I couldn't get anywhere with him. And I sent him studies and analysis and data and information, by the way, about pesticides and breast milk and all kinds of stuff. Nothing, got nothing. So the, the uh, day the bill hearing comes, and the way a bill hearing works is the sponsor, me in this case, presents the uh, bill, and uh, then they ask you questions. And he starts grilling me, and I'm sweating. It's my first bill. He's really, you know, experienced legislator. And then he says something that gives me this opening. And he says, so Delegate Morheim, you mean these tiny molecules actually make a difference in a person? And I said, yes, it does, Delegate. And here's what, I'm gonna get just a few milligrams of something, a medicine from the hospital tonight. I'll bring it to, to the uh, committee meeting tomorrow and I'll give it to you and we'll all judge whether it has an effect on you or not. Now there is a medicine, you may not have heard of it, but it's called Versed. We use it in emergency room all the time. It's kind of like a quick knockout drug for a procedure. You squirt it into people, they get knocked out, reduce their shoulder dislocation or something like that. Five minutes later, they wake up, all's fine. Uh, you have no idea how much I really wanted to give it to him. But he just looked at me and he said, oh, yeah, you're right. And he flipped. And that's what changed him. All the data didn't work. He had to have this personal connection with it. The bill passed. And we've gone from, in those years, from three to 90 wineries in Maryland. Organic food is everywhere. Farmers markets are everywhere. It all worked out real well. But what I learned was that legislators and people are people, and they respond to different things. There's some who only want statistics. They're going to say, we're not going to pass a bill because one or two people had a problem. Is this a real issue on a big scale? And other people will say, I want to know if this really impacts people. You can send me all the statistics you want. Uh, statistics, you know, made up by statisticians. You can, those numbers can be manipulated. You don't necessarily know who you're dealing with. So if you wanted to say an issue about seniors, like wouldn't it be better if seniors aged at home, you could both give a statistic. In, in this area, there's thousands of seniors who would do better aging at home, would not go into nursing homes, this would save money. And let me tell you the story of Mrs. Johnson, my next door neighbor. Her husband served in the Korean War. She's been living alone, but he died a few years ago. She's been living alone, and it's very hard for her to get by. And here's how this bill will help her. Get it? It's both things. Um, let me jump to uh, electronic recycling. I'd learned many, many years ago when the computer age hit, I found a wife and three kids that we were beginning to pile up some electronics in a closet get to buy a new computer all the time. And I would go to community meetings and say, hey, anybody got some electronics here they don't know what to do with? And every hand went up. And so this was a long time ago and I put in this uh, bill to do electronic recycling. Now I won't go into all the complexities of the bill but became a model bill for the nation. It actually requires the unit computer companies to pay for our recycling program rather than have it fall onto taxpayers or citizens. I want them to be responsible for the life cycle of their product. But to get it through a committee of 20 took different strategies uh, to get all 20 on board. So there's a third of them are 
environmentalists. They're going to be on board no matter what it is. If it's got green, it's good. But then there were some who wanted to know about, um, would this impact Maryland retailers? So I worked with the Maryland Retailers Association to be sure that the bill was satisfactory with them. They didn't want to be burdened with different kinds of charges with different kinds of computers and phones and printers and modems and all that stuff. They want something simple. So we worked that out. And then there were ones who were interested in jobs in their particular district. And so um, part of the bill uh, uh, promoted uh, electronic recycling uh, systems in, in our state rather than ship them elsewhere because they're very heavy, it's very expensive to ship. So if you, we have a few of them now and they look like uh, an assembly line in reverse. They de-shop, uh, instead of constructing something, they deconstruct stuff. And there were a couple I knew that had you know, some issues about around um, health and cancer. And I pointed out to them that uh, some of the chemicals that are in electronics like cadmium and benzene, and I'd taken enough organic chemistry as a doctor to, to say, um, well, you know, I know you're very interested in that topic. They weren't persuaded about the others, but, but this takes ca carcinogenic drugs out of the environment. We don't need that and mercury and lead going into the environment. So uh, and then there was always a few stragglers at the end. I saved them for the end. And I went to them, and these were people who were really hardcore, kind of anti-environmentalist, anti-government interference types. But I, I, I knew them, and I said, look, you have a really terrible voting record on environment. This bill, everybody else is for. You can trust me on that. If you give your word on something like this, you've you got to stick to it. So they knew I was honest about it. And I said, this is an easy vote for you. The business community is for it, the health community, the environment community, local governments, everybody's for this bill. You can vote for it and increase your percentage. Uh, on that when you get rated at the end of the year. Legislators get rated by different interest groups, 30 or 40 of them every year on whether you voted with them or against them. And so they uh, they did. So um, they came around and that passed and we have a robust electronic recycling program on our states, get millions of tons of toxins uh, out and, and other things out of the, uh, out of the environment. Uh, there's one not up here I wanna tell you about was a bill to uh, require insurance companies to um, pay for the paraphernalia that diabetics use to take care of themselves. Way back then, um, insurance companies would pay for the insulin, the little bottle of medicine, but they didn't pay for the swabs or the glucose test strips or the syringes or anything else. And so there was a bill to do that. And a lot of constituents called me up and they said, uh, Delegate Morheim, uh, you're a doctor, you know the importance of good uh, glucose control um, and uh, we'd like you to support that. And I'd say, okay, I, I get it. Um, but the Chambers of Commerce and the business community opposed it because they felt it was an interference in the dealings between an employer who would have to provide this insurance benefit uh, and their insurance company. That would be up to an employer to decide whether to provide that coverage or not. And so these people call me up and they'd say they want it. And I'd say, what do you do for a living? And they'd say, well, I own a business, a car repair shop here in uh, in your district. And I uh, say, so you remember the Chamber of Commerce? And I would say, yeah, they would say yes. And I would say, well, look, if I vote for it, I satisfy you. But if I vote for it, I, I'm antagonistic, puts me at odds with an organization that you're a member of. So it's there's an inconsistency there. You can't be for it in one and not for it in the other. So what I would like you to do is call up your business community and say, hey, this is a good bill. Um, don't beat up legislators who happen to vote for it. And so uh, people, there's a disconnect. I, I, sometimes we had some really tight budget crises and I remember people calling me up and saying, uh, Delegate Morheim, I want you to cut all 
uh, 10% off all program. I'd say, okay, I, I get that. But um, what I, I see is you asked me a couple of years ago for more money for autism because you have a kid with autism. I said, well, keep that. I said, keep that. So, well, I, you know, what about people with kids with diabetes? I have an adult child with epilepsy personally or other programs, teacher salaries, police salaries, firemen salaries, all that stuff, firefighter salaries. Those are all important to somebody. And that's, by the way, how I got interested in the procurement reform issue. Um, I didn't like the idea of raising taxes all the time, and I didn't like the idea of spending, uh, cutting programs and spending money badly. So I got into the issues of can we save money on the way government operates? And I kind of became the legislative expert in that. And because uh, if we saved 1% of a billion dollars, it actually was a lot of money. We would fight over other things. Um, I revamped the state's organ donation program. I got colon cancer screening. I dealt a lot with end of life care. Uh, which is the subject of the book that I wrote. And we hope you will take a close look at that. It's a practical guide to how to manage a difficult subject that we all will, all will face for ourselves or others, but from the point of view of empowerment. But let me close this part with the story of the gillnets. So uh, Maryland has a Chesapeake Bay, and there's an issue that's been going on every year for hundreds of years, uh, and it's about how watermen, the people who make their livings fishing the Chesapeake Bay, what rules can they fish by? And over the last 50 years, 60 years, there's been an opposing group, the sport fishermen. Basically, the watermen want uh, uh, nets where they have very small holes, gill nets they're called, very small holes, because that's how they get more pounds of fish, more tons of fish to the dock, and that's how they earn their living. And it's a very hard living too, uh, working uh, early in the morning and dangerous work. On the other hand, they're the sports fishermen, they want the nets to have big holes so those fish can swim through because that's how they attract people to go out and do sport fishing. They want to catch real big size fish. And they also support a lot of the tourism industry and the restaurant industry. So, um, and the hotel industry along the Chesapeake Bay. So these are the two warring parties. There's a hearing that's going to take place and I go to it. And I'm not even sure what a gill net is at that point. And I go to the room and it's not in our regular hearing room. It's in a big hearing room with lots of angry men and lots of police. Now, we always have one policeman in the room, but in this case, there were a lot of policemen. And as I walk in, these guys come up to me and they say, how are you voting on gill nets? Totally taken aback. I don't even know what they're talking about. And the two groups are the watermen and the sport fishermen, and they fill this hearing room. Well, I sit down and I listen to this, and I, I learn all about this issue. And and I know what they're thinking in the audience. They're thinking, this is the most important issue facing the General Assembly this year. This is a facing a committee of 21 people who are gonna decide it. And this guy, and maybe some others, but this guy from California originally, he's never been fishing and he's got a one vote on the most important issue we're facing. And he doesn't even know anything about it, which was true. Fortunately, a couple of people came up to me and said, do you like to know more about this issue? I said, that'd be very nice. So I'm gonna compress what took me about a year to learn into a few seconds, but basically I learned all about gill nets. Size, ply, weaves, colors, catch, bycatch, all kinds of stuff, and it was fascinating. One of the best parts of being a state legislator is to learn about all kinds of stuff you might not otherwise learn about. I get, did get taken fishing a couple of times, it was fun. It's not for me, but I enjoyed it. And I ended up, by the way, voting with the sport fishermen. I thought the bay was overfished. My district is not close to the the bay, there are no watermen in my district. And I got uh, three letters uh, from people who were sport fishermen in my district, one of whom was a colleague at the hospital where I worked, another was a relative, remote relative of my wife's. And so I kind of ended up on that side. But 
for all the issues you deal with, don't, and like the blood donation, don't presume that we know, but you kind of have to spoon feed folks. Start with something small, with that personal letter, and every month or two, follow up more uh, and continue with uh, uh, those themes. Um, and don't burn any bridges. Um, I, one, one of the legislators I sat next to for a number of years, we, we were polar opposites on a lot of issues. And uh, in my very first term, I was working on a bill to uh, eliminate tobacco sales through vending machines because that's how kids got uh, to tobacco. And uh, I worked on it very hard. And at the last minute, it was about to pass, and he did this some sophisticated parliamentary maneuver that I was not familiar with. And he sits right next to me, literally one foot over, and then he killed the bill right there. I felt like he was killing a firstborn child. If I had a syringe of strychnine, I would have plunged it in his thigh at that moment. However, 15 seconds later, the next bill came up and we were allies. And we continued relationship over the years. We were different on a number of issues, but on a lot of things, uh, we, we worked together. And so I learned to, it was hard for me, but I learned to disengage my personal feelings about folks and just look at them from a policy perspective and knowing that we're gonna agree on some and disagree on others. No legislator is gonna agree with everything you do, but work with them and they'll come around on a lot of stuff and you can help educate us. So this is how to reach me. I can help you with anything. There's a new book. I hope you take a look at it. Great endorsements, a couple of US senators endorsement. Uh, Maya, Maya Angelou endorsed my first book. Dr. Leanna Wen, who you see on TV endorsed uh, this book, uh, Leon McDougall, who's head of the National Medical Association, uh, which is the oldest uh, black physicians in the group in the United States, endorsed the book. Uh, I hope you get a copy, take a look, and I hope I get to talk to you about that someday. So thank you very much. It's 1230 uh, here at East Coast time. I've had my half hour, but it's been an honor to be with you in knowledgeable aging. Thank you so hey, much. Hey, Dr. Morheim, if you don't mind, if you could spell out for our, those that will be listening on our podcast, your, your email address and the book, if you could, please. Sure, thank you, Dan Morheim, and my email is danmorheim at gmail.com, D-A-N-M-O-R-H-A-I-M at gmail.com, D-A-N-M-O-R-H-A-I-M. And the book website is thebetteren.com, www.t-h-e-b-e-t-t-e-r-n.com, thebetteren.com, and all the information about the book uh, is there, and it goes into a lot of, it's really a pra practical book. Here's the kind of things that could happen. Here's how you can manage them according to your personal wishes and values. Very good. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Morheim. As far as knowledgeable aging, you can go to our website, www.knowledgeableaging.com, and you can find all of our archive content there. You can also go to YouTube. Uh, when you get on YouTube, type in knowledgeable aging. We encourage you to subscribe. We update the YouTube page probably four to five times per week. If podcasts are your thing, you can go to Spotify, Apple Tunes, et cetera. Until next time, I'm your host, Jason Kotar, and this is Knowledgeable Aging.